This is the Coast and Country podcast from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with Helen Mark. It inspires you, doesn't it? Why does it inspire you? Come on then, tell me about this beautiful place. The Monash and Brecon Canal is often described as the prettiest canal on the network, and I, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. And I think when you're at somewhere like Brecon Basin this morning with the daffodils all out around the basin, the canal boats, the colour, um, it's such a beautiful place. The Monmouthshire and Brecon Canal. It is 200 years old. It's 200 years old this year. It was originally two canals, the Brecknock and Abergavenny Canal and the Monmouthshire Canal. And we were both joined in 1812 at a basin called Pontemoyle. And that allowed the canal to run from Brecon all the way to Newport and then make the connection with the sea. So we're celebrating the 200th anniversary. We've got all the communities, all of the businesses along the canal are participating in it. And we're going to have a wonderful celebration lasting the whole year. Well, I'm just here for one day to spend some time with yourself, David Morgan of British Waterways. And, you know, some of the people are involved in the canal in different ways. And there is a reason why we're at the Brecon Basin to start our exploration for the programme. Yes, we're waiting here this morning for a special beer that's been brewed for the anniversary celebration to be delivered. And that's going to be delivered by barge to all the pubs along the canal. (laughs) But it's been delivered, first of all, to the canal side here by horse and dray so it's recreating what would have happened 200 years ago which is a fantastic way of celebrating the 200th anniversary oh my goodness here they are arriving now and this uh, carriage is being drawn by the most handsome black horse it looks like a shire but it's slightly finer it's got the long mane over its eyes its coat is gleaming and it holds its head so proud isn't that wonderful? So eye-catching. Hello. And it's, it's Buster. I'm Buster Grant. I'm the head brewer of Brecon Brewing. And you have this special cargo on the uh, the dray, yes. it's called? We have uh, eight casts of our beacons to the sea. And what's your intention today then, Buster? What we're going to do is load up on the good ship Tamarisk, which is down waiting for us in the basin, and we're going to progress up the canal. We've got to go to the lock at Brinock, and then we're going to offload some casks, and we're going to have a race from the lock up to... <laughs> Hello, Brown. <laughs> I think he's laughing at the thought of you racing anywhere. It is. <laughs> <laughs> and would it be all right if I just join you along the way and, you know, if I can give you a hand with some of the, the casks, just ask. Absolutely, please do. Well, we have a seat at the front of the barge. We are now going to deliver some beer along this canal. And it was a canal for transporting an immense amount of goods, wasn't it? These places were were vital to the development of industry. They really were the motorways of the Industrial Revolution. Most of the canals were built from 1790 onwards. And they had a very short lifespan, mainly used from 1790 to about 1850. And, of course, the railways then came afterwards. But for the ironworks, which were spread right across the South Wales valleys, the canal was absolutely critical to to move in the iron from those ironworks. And many of the ironworks had connections with tramways that were built from the ironworks to the canal so that they could transport then to the wharfs and also bring in the raw materials as well. We're just going to make our first port of call with the beer, which is to be the rugby club. There you go. OK. OK, up a flight of steps. Lifting it. In we go. Roll out the barrel. Roll out the barrel. So we're out onto the waters of the canal. The water is obviously wonderfully still. 
and calm and clear. I can see right down to the bottom. We're reminded that, you know, this is an older transport system by the fact that we're running alongside the modern transport system, the road just to my left-hand side as we're, we're travelling along. But take me back a bit, you know, to the, the construction of this canal. The canal was built um, by Thomas Dartford, and the unique thing about this Monmouth and Brecon Canal is that it's a canal that's actually built uh, on a contour because as the, the glacier went down this Ask Valley, it left a, a glacial moraine and they actually built the canal into that material. So there's only six locks on this section of 35 miles from uh, Brecon here down to uh, five locks just by Cumbran. So the unique thing about this canal is that you level most of the way and it's got one of the longest cruising sections of around about 25 miles on the whole of the British Waterways network, without, which is lock-free. And so when, in the first days, it was transporting heavy goods, that must have made a huge difference to the time it took to, to, to actually move them from it, production to selling point or It would whatever. have. It would have made it a lot easier because obviously you didn't have all those locks to go through and the time factor, and like anything, time is money, isn't it? What it would have transported would have been uh, the iron from all the iron works agricultural goods, uh, lime would have been transported up and down so that that could have been used for a fertiliser to increase yields on the agricultural areas because this canal's uh, in the Brecon Beacons National Park and it's fantastic scenery that we've got around us but it was also a very agricultural area so producing a lot of agricultural produce as well as the iron and the coal and the other goods and services that were actually transported you know, right along the canal. So we have this stretch of water in front of us and the sun is shining, we've got wonderful reflections in the water. The whole branch system of the trees above us, you can see once again if you look down. It's beautiful, isn't it? It is, and the great thing about this canal is that because it's built on this, this contour, as we travel further along the canal and further down the Ask Valley uh, towards Newport, so the canal hugs the mountainside, so you're actually looking down on the valley and really you're, you're an integral part of the landscape. Part of the purpose of our journey on the barge is to deliver the beer. Yes. So tell me a little bit about what we've got on board. We've got uh, the Beacons to the Sea. It's uh, a 4.1% pale gold, quite zesty, really refreshing beer. My Which mouth is watering just that just that say, Let's just try a little bit. Yes, let's. Ooh, yeah. Look at that pouring out of a cask which we've set on the, the roof of the barge. And it is a, it's a very sort of honey, golden honey colour, isn't it? Yeah. And a very light froth on the top and the nose. Yeah, light, light beer. Yep, and have yeah, a taste. Mm. Mm, very refreshing. The thing is, you're, in a way, you're sort of re recreating a piece of history. Absolutely. I mean, beer was brewed in Brecon and, and, I suppose, exported down the canal. That was one of the, the three main things. We had lime, we had coal, and we had beer. So we, we're very much back in the history of, of what the canal was originally used for. Once I get through to the other side of this bridge, I'm going to jump off, David, and find out a little bit more about the wildlife and the industrial heritage of this canal, and then I'll meet up with you later on. OK, Helen. Yep, see you later on. You know, it's hard to imagine sometimes that there were hundreds of thousands of tonnes of product from the age of industry, the Industrial Revolution being transported along this canal. One of the major products was lime. So um, to find out about how that was part of the system and actually is still part of the system in a way in modern times, I've come to meet Nigel Jervis of T. Mao Lime. 
And the reason I've stopped off at this particular point, I have in front of me now. If you imagine a long stone-built wall with archways in it, and those archways are like, well, they're like tunnels. This is a bank of lime kilns, and, and you would have a typical bank such as this where you have four kilns in a row. We've got the canal up above, so limestone would have been brought in, rolled out of the wagons above into the lime kilns. And the bank of four has a seven-day cycle. So you have one kiln that's being charged, one kiln that's being fired, one kiln that's cooling down, and the other kiln that's being drawn out of. And it's just, it, it, it's so typical of how vitally important this whole industry was. Uh, the core of Wales is, is built on its geology. It's built on the geology because what's in the ground is, is iron and coal and lime, and these are such vital parts that run through that whole struggle of the industrial process of Wales. Around this part of the world, you have outcrops of limestone that pop up, and where you had those outcrops, you'd then get a lime kilns built, because you, you wouldn't want to take your heavy limestone to a kiln. You'd build your kiln, ideally, closer to where your limestone is. But in a situation like this, where you've got a, a larger process, they bought the limestone in and use gravity to drop it downhill into mm -hmm. the top of the kiln and then roll it out onto the, onto the tram to take so it away. From the waterway at the top, it was a thundering of stone down into the, yeah. the, the archway, the, the kiln that was mm. to receive it at that particular time. Yeah. And then it's what happens to it, or happened to it. It, it comes in as, uh, as calcium carbonate. It's then put into a kiln, and the kiln burns it, obviously, and that drives off water and it drives off carbon dioxide. So that converts it into calcium oxide. That's quicklime, burnt lime. So this would be the stuff that was used as a fluxing agent in the steel industry. It would be um, slaked down to, to make mortars and, and plasters for, for building. It would be spread out over the land, which would then sweeten the land. Mm -hmm. So agriculturally it was used for, uh, to, to improve grazing land. And, you know, isn't it, the, one of the processes... In, in the making of lime, do you know, and it very often happens, is that the words from that industry we use in our everyday language, don't they? So you're going to do a little bit of what's called slaking. slaking. Yeah. And don't we slake our thirst, you we know, do don't we? Thirst, yeah, Quench our exactly thirst. That's what you're doing with lime. You're adding lime, quick lime, so calcium oxide to water, and that produces an exothermic reaction. So it rapidly absorbs the water and it gets very hot but it's a process that we go through to, to make our, our, our raw material. Right, I'll carry this bucket. It's a battered old um, iron pail, and it's so encrusted with lime, all white on the inside. comes off on your fingers, look. I'm going to put some protective eyeglasses on. So we'll put a little bit of water into the bucket, and you always add your lime to water... Never water to lime. It's just tipping the powder into the water. So obviously um, wear goggles and gloves. Okay. Oh, it's bubbling already. Well, the temptation is, of course, to look, put your head over the top of the bucket. When you had um, rocks of limestone, you would find that um, those rocks would crack and then burst, um, which was a lot more dramatic. But, um, Just you in, can a, in see a few seconds, few... Nigel, it's starting to bubble as though you had put, you know, like a gas burner underneath mm. it mm. and you're bringing your water to the boil. You can't believe it's happening, can you? <laughs> I really can't. Oh, my goodness! 
So steam is rising from the bucket and this liquid inside, this creamy, like double cream colour, is bubbling and frothing. And, you know, because it's becoming thicker, that you get, like, um, the bubbles explode into miniature craters on the top of it. And there, look, before our very eyes, it's calming down, it's hissing, and now you so, put the stick in so and it's solidified. You've got that beautiful, creamy putty. So that putty would be usually allowed to cool and settle and then it would be added to aggregates, to sands, to produce mortars, plasters and renders. And this, this is used in the canal today? Yeah, we've, um, we've been involved in supplying the canal waterways with lime for various projects and um, block rebuilds and bridge rebuilds for a number of years. And it's what we, we, we would like to try and do, see if we can get lime onto the canal and ship it down to bridges for repair. And I think there are possibilities for, for doing that there to complete the cycle. Yes, yes. I'll tell you what's interesting. I mean, we've only just set off and it's, it's quite a, a cool morning still. And yet you can see all the clouds of insects, you know, that are just starting to move over the canal. And if you think about canals, they're, they're lovely green corridors that, that cut across the countryside. And, and bats use them as, as kind of highways where they can not only travel to feeding areas, but they can feed as they're going. Well, here I am, just gliding along with Mark Robinson, who's an ecologist with British Waterways. But what I really want to have a wee think about now, Mark, is how what were channels for industry are now channels for leisure and for wildlife. I mean, we've got great bird song. It's with us all the time. We've got, we've got plenty for them to feed on with all these mm-hmm. midges. There we have. Isn't it? It's quite... It is, and, and you're special. right, the canals, they weren't built for, for leisure and tourism like, like they're being used now. They were built as you know, part of our industrial heritage, but now they're so good for wildlife. As you say, you listen to the birds' song, they're so good for bats, and we're approaching a bridge now, and I'm fairly sure there's fresh otter sprains under this bridge, and along the whole of the, the Monenbrek Canal we're finding otter records. So how does an otter use a canal? Is it for feeding or is it for shelter? You can see the otter sprains on here just as we're going past. They're just the dark, dark patches. There's quite a few areas there. And we find them under the bridges because they're more protected areas. The, The otters are territorial and what they're doing is they're finding prominent places that are protected from the elements. So that scent that they put down to tell other otters, keep out, it's my territory, will remain longer. It won't get washed away by the Welsh weather and you know it'll last that much longer <laughs> what a lovely thought that, you know this this wild creature is using a remnant of the industrial age to protect its territory <laughs> absolutely the Monmouth and Brecon Canal you can find well I was going to say more or less anything I mean we've got mallards swimming in front of the the boat here we have kingfishers frequently recorded along this this stretch perching on on some of the, the twigs on the side of the bank here looking for fish and one of the beauties of the, the Monobrek Canal is it runs alongside the River Usk and the wildlife can migrate between the two sites so the otters that are coming up and feeding in the canal will also be going down to the river, perhaps um, breeding on the river. What is very noticeable too is um, how beautifully tree-lined the canal is. Well, one of the beauties of, of the Monobrek is there's lots of mature older trees and these are older trees that, that we're going past now and occasionally there's the odd oak and the odd ash but predominantly at the moment uh, they're alders but as we go further 
downstream further south we, we come more into oak woodland now that's what you call the offside that you're looking at that's right yes. and that's got the hard edges of the canal whereas on the other side mark you've got the soft edge where the towpath is the grass comes right down to the that's water that's right and and on the towpath side, as you say, it's, it's a soft green kind of fringe and the vegetation's growing in the water. I mean, it's still quite early in the season and there's not a lot of uh, vegetation that's grown up at the moment. But give it a couple of months and we'll have some nice sedges and rushes and water plants growing along the edge here that will, will give a, an even greater green appearance, which is really good for things like fish fry, young fish to, to shelter in from bigger fish. It's good for insects, uh, dragonflies. You know, it creates a really nice habitat. On the offside, it does have a hard edge appearance, but this, in actual fact, is, is an area of, of bank protection that we put in last year. 10, 20 years ago, we might have come along here and just knocked steel piles in. Right. Um, but what we've done now is we've put wooden posts in and we've put um, a geotextile, which is basically a, a kind of a nylon mesh, between the posts and filled behind there with probably dredgings out of the canal and then we've planted you can see there's there's rushes here that are just starting to to grow mm-hmm, mm-hmm. out of that uh, soft bank and, and the vegetation is like growing that? over it's it's so much better for wildlife the plants can grow a lot better even even now you'll see areas where the plants are starting to grow actually through that that nylon mesh so it creates a a good environment for wildlife and you know we're we're sort of slipping through the countryside at the moment but it's this same piece of water that then will take us into the more built-up areas. One of the beauties of the canal, one of the things that, that really excites me about the canals is this green highway, this green network. And even where the canals pass through towns and some of our other canals pass through some of the, the bigger, more built-up areas, they take that green wildlife corridor with them. And I know I'm biased because I work on this stretch of canal, but this has to be one of the nicest we have in the country. It really does. When you think about these canals as transport highways, they had to get the goods down to the actual water. And to find out more about how they did that and how they used the landscape to get goods down onto the canal, I've come to Clanfoist Wharf, which is in the Blynavon World Heritage Site area. And if I was to do this by barge it would take me about a day and a half of cruising so I've had to jump in the car and take <laughs> take the roadway and I've come here to meet Kerry Cadwallader. Hello. Now explain to me we've walked up the hillside we've got the canal below us how did they move goods about? Well the journey started right on the other side of the mountain in Blind Avon. Uh, material would have been so the, the coal the iron and actually the limestone from the quarries up on the mountain would have been loaded onto trams that were horse-drawn originally there was a tunnel that went underneath the mountain that was three quarters of a mile long so it would come through the tunnel through the mountain and on then on a relatively flat yes. surface up on the top absolutely and then later on they started to take it over the top once it, it reached the top they had to drop down quite steeply on this side to yes. reach the canal and they used a system of inclines, so these very steep slopes with the trams on. They couldn't use a horse on this sort of gradient, so they used instead a counterweight system. So the heavier trams coming down to unload at the wharf would pull the empties back, back up, up the hill to, the top to, be, to be filled. And so it went on. And as we look up the hillside now, we have a wonderful forest that surrounds us, natural woodlands, birdsong. That would have been deadened by the sound of trucks like this. You've got one here. This is a replica of what they would have looked like. Um, A sort of a wooden trough, maybe about 
three times the size of a wheelbarrow, mm-hmm. so not huge, and then linked together and on these tramways. It's an amazing feat of engineering, and actually when you're on the top now, I mean, it's a beautiful day today, but sometimes it can be quite a bleak mm-hmm. sort of landscape. It was quite impressive that these people managed to engineer their way across it and travel these distances to reach the canal on this side of the mountain. And who, who was doing the work? Well, before the industries of Blynavon developed, there was a very, very small population. It wasn't, well, it wasn't a town at all. It was really just a, a rural farming valley. Um, so the ironworks in Blynavon, first of all, and then later the mines really drew the people in to work there. So the population rose from a few hundred people up to about 12,000 in a relatively short time. And, I mean, was this a, a place where, you know, people from the Welsh countryside came to work? There would have been people coming from fairly local, so there would have been Welsh people coming from other valleys moving in. There was a big movement of people from the Forest of Dean and also Somerset because there was some tradition of charcoal burning and iron making from charcoal as a fuel in those areas. Um, but there was then also a movement of people from Staffordshire in particular because the indus- similar industries are developed there. Mm-hmm. But there were movements from further afield as well. So we followed Hungarian families that have got history in Blynavon. Um, we know that there were Irish families. There were a lot of Irish people that worked on the building of the canal in bet- particular. A lot of the Navries are canal diggers or Irish. So people did travel quite a long way, a surprising distance to work in these industries. And how important do you think the canal is to particularly the Blynavon World Heritage Site? Well, it was vital to the development of the, the industry and the history of the site. Um, without the, the ability to transport material out of the area, there would have been no, no purpose in having the industries in these, these quiet little valleys. Now it's an important aspect in terms of tourism. It's a real visitor attraction. It's a really popular place for visitors to come. Mm. Let's go back down okay. uh, towards the canal. You know, when you think about industrial heritage, particularly in South Wales here, you think, you know, what remnants do we have left? The most obvious ones would be the occasional um, steel structures, you know, the pit heads. But you don't really think of the canals in the same sort of way, do we? They've sort of been forgotten about a bit. No, they don't. And I think people see them as they are today. As I mean, particularly the Mon- Monmouthshire and Brecon Canal is a very rural canal. It's very wooded, it's very green and pleasant. And they forget that actually it's only here because of the industry. Um, the Blynathan World Heritage Site, the entire landscape, including the canal, tells the story of how this place developed and, and, and the importance of the South Wales Valleys during the Industrial Revolution, not just to, to Wales but to the UK and actually to the world because these were producing the fuels and producing the, the important materials that were really powering this change and this growth. And, I mean, that's where my job came from, really. I work for a project called the Forgotten Landscapes Project, So what we're trying to do through the project is explain to people that the whole landscape is important, the whole landscape is part of the the story of Blynavon and what happened in this area and actually encourage as many people as possible to get out, learn about it, enjoy it and make use of this area. Now I have to jump back in the car and catch up with David and Buster again because there's some very important work to do with a barrel of beer. (laughs) I see. (laughs) David, you know, with British Waterways, you're going to be coordinating all the bicentenary celebrations aren't you all the way along the canal all the way along the canal for the whole year we saw the opportunity for communities right along the whole length of the canal to celebrate in whatever way they wanted to because were people disconnected from their canal i think it's inevitable that that can become part of it and the opportunity with this celebration was to reconnect those communities to say it's very much about your canal and the way that you want to celebrate it Well, I've reached the end of my journey with you, David. Um, And you and I are going to be involved in this barrel rolling. Yes, we've we've got press gang, don't we? (laughs) 
got press ganged into that. But that's all right. We, we'll do fine. We'll do it's our best. Pill. But I'm thinking so much work has been done to bring the canal to how it is now, but it never rests. What happened with the canal was that um, during the, the 60s onwards, then many bridges were built along the canal. We have um, urbanisation encroaching on the canal, so lots of the canal sections are, are cut off. But over the years sections are being rewatered and, and redone and it's about opening up those blockages and that's an ongoing restoration program which lots of bodies are engaged and involved with. If we can continue this restoration right the way down to Newport then we can see what a valuable asset the canal is to not just South Wales but to Wales and its heritage. Right, roll those sleeves up. We've got some work to do David. I think we have <laughs> and it's a pill. <laughs> Ready, steady, Go! Come on, Jesus!